0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk, or follow us on Twitter at ccsdham. The following lecture was presented on the ninth of May, two thousand nineteen, by Dr. Vincent Lloyd, associate professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. It is presented as part of a joint Allen Richardson and Catholic Theology Research Seminar series, and is entitled "Black Dignity." Thank you so much, uh, Marcus, for that very generous uh, introduction. And it's moving to hear that once work has been uh, helpful. For others, it's been a great pleasure to uh, come to Durham and to get to know uh, the community here over just the uh, past week and a half. I'm looking forward to the next couple of months of interacting with the theology and religion community and the St. John's community where I'm staying and where the, the staff and uh, and other community members have been so uh, generous in, in welcoming me. Uh, today, I, I want to uh, offer a bit of an experiment in thinking about uh, dignity. Uh, it was Help hope to hear a bit about the task of the Alan Richardson Fellow in terms of thinking through doctrine and, and Christian thought. And While those are, are categories that uh, I do find uh, important, I, I want to think about them uh, rather sideways. Um, my experiment is to think uh, first with negative theology and to think what it means to take negative theology not as a, a project for <laughs> systematics, Uh, But for ethics, what does it mean when we start our uh, discussions of Christian ethics in the negative about what we cannot say, rather than with the moralizing of telling people what they ought to do and how they ought to live? And second, what does it mean when we start thinking about Christian ethics from the experiences of marginalized communities, uh, which means starting with practices and social movements and organizing rather than... Uh, with a set of concepts or a conceptual cathedral. The language of dignity is a common denominator of racial justice movements uh, across US history the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and black feminist organizing. In 2016, the Movement for Black Lives disseminated a platform that begins, quote, black humanity and dignity require black political will and power. And Black Lives Matter associated preacher, Seku proclaimed, quote, I understand the gospel to affirm black dignity. Yet black political struggles, and in the background of black political theology, are more often identified with themes of love and justice than with dignity. I hypothesize that if dignity takes center stage, forms of black political struggle seemingly at odds with each other, black nationalists and integrationists, black feminists and centrists black writers and black community organizers, in fact, appear to be animated by the same fundamental impulse, and a political theological impulse. Before that hypothesis can be tested, it's necessary to reflect on what dignity means in black politics. This latter preliminary task, is the one I take up here, first by reviewing the use of dignity in recent black political organizing and its antecedents, then by positing three basic characteristics of dignity in black politics, and then finally by responding to two worries about my account of dignity. Attending to dignity in black politics allows for a dialogue with a large number of scholarly studies that have examined dignity over the last decade, Political theorists and intellectual historians have shown particular interest in the concept, developing a rapidly growing literature that stands at a distance from the steady stream of Christian theological reflection on dignity over the past half-century. Attempts are underway to bridge this divide, with secular political theorists taking a deeper interest in the role dignity plays in religious thought, not only Christian theology, but also Jewish, Islamic, and other religious thought. I suspect frustration with the language of human rights partially motivates this turn to dignity. Over the last couple of decades, critics of human rights from the academy, from activist circles, and from the Global South political circles have pointed to ways in which human rights language and ideas are applied arbitrarily, often advancing the interests of the powerful rather than part of a consistent, systematic, moral position. Moreover, the set of human rights seems to grow or shrink based on the interests of the day, with no agreement on how to determine what counts as a human right. Those theorists proposing a method for determining what counts have been charged with Western cultural imperialism, given the uncanny similarity between the set of rights their theories produce and the set of rights endorsed by Western political actors. Dignity promises to ground human rights in a clear, relatively uncontroversial claim, one that is endorsed broadly by many religious uh, traditions of the world, or so its proponents insist. Namely, that each human being has inherent incalculable worth. Accounts of dignity along these lines clearly resonate with Christian theological accounts of dignity, where incalculable worth comes from human's creation in the image of God, but there are also uh, long lines of secular and non Christian reflection on dignity. Most famously, this includes the ethical theory of Kant, but an alternative lineage of dignity following from Hegel's thought is attracting increasing attention as well, thanks to recent work by Axel Hahn. At the level of political and legal practice, the intellectual foundation of dignity remains bracketed as the concept enshrined in international and national legal norms affirmed in the UN Charter, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the constitutions of 142 countries is applied to specific circumstances and contexts ranging from bioethics to the laws of war to prisoners' rights. Recent attempts to provide expansive interdisciplinary overviews of the concept of dignity, including, including most notably the hefty edited volumes Understanding Human Dignity from Oxford in 2013 and The Cambridge Handbook of Human Dignity. Uh, from Cambridge in 2014, uh, have sought to pluralize the scholarly conversation about dignity. Am I attempting to add yet another perspective on dignity from a different cultural context, than that of African Americans? In one sense, the sources I discuss here do this, but my interest is more fundamental. I want to make a stronger claim. Dignity, as it is found in black political thought, is not an example of an important political-philosophical or political-theological concept applied to a specific context. Rather, dignity is is misunderstood by European Christian or post-Christian sources, or their pluralization. Put another way, making explicit my methodological commitments, examining dignity from the perspective of marginalized communities corrects errors that necessarily arise when a concept is examined from a perspective of privilege. The black perspective on dignity is not just one more perspective, it's a better perspective, at least it's a crime. So, a part one, circulation. According to the three women who coined the hashtag Black Lives Matter, dignity has always been at the heart of their movement. It was labor organizer Alicia Garza who first put the now famous three words into circulation in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman for killing Trayvon Martin. And with the work of fellow organizers Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi, a movement took shape, spreading on social media, but grounded in local racial justice organizing collectives, taking action in the streets. Amid multiple media narratives circulating around the origins of the movement, Garza told the story herself, a her story of the movement, as she called it. After reflecting on the movement's origins, Garza asserts, in her, uh, asserts its core commitment, quote, When we say Black Lives Matter, we are talking about the ways in which black people are deprived of our basic human rights and dignity. In the text that follows, she lists some some of what ails the black community, poverty, incarceration, economic exploitation, immigration issues, particular harms faced by blacks with disabilities and black queers, and more. All of this, Garza asserts, is part of white supremacy, a structure of domination that Black Lives Matter aims to challenge. The ultimate goal is not to benefit black people, but to benefit everyone. When, she writes, quote, when black people get free, everybody gets free. When the movement calls, what the movement calls for, Garza concludes, is, quote, defense of our humanity. That is what will restore dignity to blacks, and that is what will point us in the direction of a road without domination, a road where everybody is free. Colors, uh, as collaborator, similarly places dignity at the heart of her understanding of the movement. She reflects well, I come at my work from a deep philosophical place that asks, What does it take for humans to live in our full humanity and allow for others to live in their full dignity? Colors founded Dignity and Power Now, a grassroots organizing collective based in Los Angeles that focuses on empowering those incarcerated and their loved ones. Using tactics that include coalition building, art, research, and leadership development, Dignity and Power now challenges mass incarceration by focusing locally, aware of both the effects of imprisonment on individuals and the broader systems, the prison industrial complex, of which the Los Angeles criminal Justice System is a part. In her memoir, Colors reflects on the origins of her organization's name, she remembers the arrest of her brother and she remembers how, at the, same time, uh, that, uh, at the same time that mainstream America was ignoring the realities of police violence experienced by black communities, like hers, Nelson Mandela had become an international icon of the struggle for justice. She recounts the words of Mandela's speech from his 1964 trial, quote, our fight is against real and not imaginary hardships, poverty and lack of human dignity. The lack of human dignity experienced by Africans is a direct result of the policy of white supremacy. Domination deprives individuals of dignity, and the call for dignity motivates the struggle against domination, She's saying. That struggle takes place through art, activism, research, and other activities. If we take now seriously and equivocally in dignity and power now, it becomes clear how dignity can both the goal and, in another sense, the achievement entailed by the practices of organizing themselves. Opal Tometi is a Nigerian-American who directs the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. She, too, describes Black Lives Matter in terms of dignity. It aims, quote, to protect and affirm the beauty and dignity of all black lives. When speaking out on immigration, she also uses the language of dignity, they're crying current immigration laws because they have, quote, disregarded the dignity and human rights of millions of immigrants, unquote, with the struggle for the dig- dignity of immigrants, including black immigrants, connected to the struggle for dignity of blacks in Africa and black Americans. Too many describes herself as, quote, a believer and practitioner of liberation theology, and she links her commitment to dignity to her faith commitment. We are all called she asserts, to our highest, most dignified selves. Further, one's spiritual practice and aspirations for dignity and self-actualization are what a rich faith life is about. Note here how Tometi is not identifying faith with a commitment to dignity, for example, by saying that belief in God allows her to recognize the inherent worth and dignity of every human being. Rather, dignity appears in gradations, and becoming more dignified, which she calls self-actualization, is something we can achieve through faith life. Tomeni goes on to assert that faith and justice are inextricably intertwined. A rich faith life means a life committed to the struggle for social justice. While three women started the Black Lives Matter movement, it quickly took on a life of its own as individuals connected via social media or organizing meetings creating new formations and energizing existing grassroots networks. With media narratives defining the movement and limiting it, leaders decided to work together on a platform that could spell out in detail the shared values of movement participants and the injustices that the movement in all its manifestations targeted. Through a year-long consultative process creating dialogues between local racial justice groups, the movement for Black Lives Platform began to take shape. This document includes a preamble and six demands, with each demand detailing a problem and solutions at the national and local level, together with further resources and information about groups organizing around each demand. The platform's preamble describes the world desired by the movement, quote, a world in which the full humanity and dignity of all people is recognized. To achieve this well, requires black political will and power. Again, there is a certain equivocation here. In one sense, dignity is the desired end state, likely never to be reached. In another sense, the more black organizing, the more black dignity. In other words, it seems as though there is an eschatological sense of dignity at work, present in the world of full humanity, in Christian terms, when the dead will arise, and also a worldly sense of dignity at work, where dignity is identified with struggle. In the demands themselves, a third sense of dignity is at work. This is dignity achieved when specific practices of domination end, not eschatologically and not in struggle. To take three examples, the movement opposes a pacific partnership trade agreement so as to advance the dignity of black workers. It supports a constitutional right to education in order to advance the dignity of students and it opposes the shackling of women during pregnancy and childbirth uh, when they're incarcerated to advance women's dignity. Many, international, uh, many intellectual and organizing streams flow into the current movement for racial justice in the United States, and young organizers have been particularly effective at discerning which practices and ideas of earlier generations are most important to embrace. As Collar's citation of Mandela on dignity suggests, organizers are well aware that dignity has long been a part of the vocabulary of black politics. In fact, it is astounding just how ubiquitous it is. Even militantly secularist youths rallying around the slogan black power, who would discard as ineffective and old-fashioned many elements of civil rights movement Christianity, continue to talk about dignity Even those black feminists who turned toward the language of love and self-care embraced the language of dignity. From poets to novelists to orators to elected politicians, dignity was widely discussed, though this has rarely been reflected on by political theorists. I don't have time to carry uh, carry out an exhaustive survey and analysis of the, the concept of dignity in black politics, but I'll offer a few examples. Langston Hughes, the acclaimed poet, develops the concept of dignity in two quite different contexts. In one poem from the 1930s about the ordeal of the Scottsboro boys, a group of young black men who were uh, lynched, Hughes, uh, or, uh, Hughes writes of how, uh, who were falsely accused of uh, 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 sexual misconduct, Hughes writes of how, quote, a young black boy will die, yet judges in high places still preserve their dignity. This suggests a sort of hollow dignity, dignity that is not dignity at all, the dignity supposed supposed to attach to a judge that is given the lie when we see that judge as a child killer. In a poem titled Harlem Dance Hall, published in 1947, Hughes describes the transformation of the eponymous building when music starts. Quote, suddenly the earth was there in flowers, trees, and air. The hall had no dignity before the poem begins and ends, but music gives it life, and with that, dignity. In contrast to the hollow dignity of the judge, a band creates rich, thick dignity, dignity that includes individuals but is not reducible to the sum of individuals. The concept of dignity was deeply baked into the vocabulary of Martin Luther King, Jr. Indeed, in a collection of his key writings, the word dignity appears more than 100 times, and it occurs more than 30 times in King's account of the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Sometimes, King uses dignity (coughs) to suggest nobility, the dignity of courtesy titles, but more often dignity contrasts with life subject to domination. He writes, quote, It is ultimately more honorable to walk the streets in dignity than to ride the buses in humiliation. Both senses of dignity touch on honor, but in the second sense, honor is achieved under the shadow of segregation. Moreover, in the case of the bus boycotters, dignity was not only connected to personal honor, it was also connected to collective struggle. Walking the streets gave the boycotters dignity, deserved honor, because in this act, they were challenging a system of domination. After the Montgomery protests had uh, continued for 11 months with its ups and downs, King told assembled protesters, quote, I want you to know that this struggle has not been in vain. If it has done any one thing in this community, it has given us a new sense of dignity and destiny. And I think that in itself is a victory for freedom and a victory for the, case, the cause of justice. Dignity is achieved through struggle, King is asserting regardless of whether particular policies are changed, regardless of whether complete dignity beyond domination is achieved, dignity in a meaningful sense is found in a community working together to challenge white supremacy, to challenge domination as such. Marcus Garvey, uh, the black nationalist, frequently used the term dignity in the sense associated with nobility, but occasionally he used it in more expansive senses as well. Near the end of his life, in theological reflections, Garvey exhorts his audience to be sure they are clean before that they are clean before they approach God—not in bodies, but in minds. Quote, Your thoughts are the thoughts that make you look like God. It is our soul, our intelligence, that is His likeness. Therefore, we must live up to the dignity and honor of His intelligence by possessing our souls and using our minds. Regardless of how wealthy and healthy someone is, she or he has the potential to participate in the dignity of God by using a mind creatively. Garvey takes his own life as an example, recalling how he was born black in a white-dominated world in Jamaica, but he did not let himself be constrained by the ways of the world. Quote, I looked at the system that man fixed up for me, and I said, it did not suit me. quote. This is dignity, realizing that systems of domination constrain our humanity, stamp out the image of God, and then creatively rebelling. In later black nationalist writings, dignity would continue to play an important role, for example, with Malcolm X repeatedly naming human dignity as the goal of this struggle. A few years later, Stokely Carmichael uh, would repeatedly invoke the concept of dignity, for example, calling on black nationalists to, quote, make alliances with people who are trying to rebuild their cultures, trying to rebuild their history, trying to rebuild their dignity with people who are fighting for their humanity. The concept of dignity is found in the classics of black feminism, from Ida B. Wells to Anna Julia Cooper, as well as the modern classics from Audre Lorde to Angela Davis to Alice Walker. Bell Hooks is particularly instructive because she uses dignity not only to mark opposition to white supremacy, but also to look at the differential impact of domination across gender lines. Black women, unlike black men, quote, were made to feel that when survival was a crucial issue, personal dignity should be sacrificed, unquote. In other words, Hooks suggests a way in which challenging domination is a privilege that not everyone in dominated communities can afford. Sexual and racial domination intersect, with the result that the possibility of dignity is taken away from black women. She writes, quote, Black women were told that we should find our dignity not in liberation from sexist oppression, but in how well we could adjust, adapt, and cope. Life bent into conformity with systems of domination, the book suggests, is not dignity at all. Practice oriented toward liberation is where dignity is to be found. In a quite different uh, sort of political arena, Michelle Obama repeatedly invokes dignity in her speeches and is described as embodying dignity. She told a New Hampshire audience on the campaign trail for Hillary Clinton, quote, America's greatness comes from recognizing the innate dignity and worth of all our people. Having a president who does not respect the dignity of women cannot make America great, she suggests. Mm -hmm. While the same word is used by Obama, as it is by Hooks and by many other black feminists, in the realm of electoral politics, dignity, I worry, reduces to a status disconnected from a practice of liberation. Uh, Part two and characteristics. The standard history of dignity told by political theorists is based around a shift from one meaning of dignity before modernity to another meaning of dignity in modernity, with the earlier meaning persisting in a subordinate role in ordinary speech today. Before modernity, dignity suggested the honor and privileges associated with high rank or office. Dignity in this sense was attributed to kings and nobles, church officials, and government officials. Dignity was an attribute of, as the word suggests, dignitaries. Among kings, all of the same rank, there is equality, and so among dukes, among bishops, and among judges. According to Jeremy Waldron, a political theorist, in the late 18th century, a transvaluation of values occurs. Now it is ordinary people rather than classes of elites who have dignity, while the dignity previously ascribed to elites comes to be seen as superficial or bogus. Ordinary people all share in the same rank, all share in humanity, and so all share in a basic type of equality. Dignity now, in modernity, is ascribed to each person by virtue of his or her humanity. We still talk of dignitaries and about politicians or other elites sullying the dignity of their office, but in political and legal discourse, dignity refers to the inherent birth of each human being. Dignity is democratized. In contrast, the concept of dignity found in black political thought at its best is neither attributed to classes of individuals because of their rank, nor is it ascribed to all individuals by virtue of their humanity. Dignity is ascribed to those who struggle against domination. Those who dominate or who participate in systems of domination do not have dignity. Those who are entirely dominated to the point that all of their speech and actions are determined by the dynamics of domination do not have dignity. But those who are subjected to domination and challenge that domination in whatever way, from passive resistance, to active political organizing, to aesthetic imagining, those individuals are properly described as having dignity. In the U.S., racial landscape simplified to black and white, this means whites who ignore their privilege lack dignity. Blacks who follow the scripts given to them by white supremacy lack dignity. But all who challenge white supremacy have dignity. Obviously, these are ideal types. Considered in laboratory conditions, in the real world, all people experience domination in some aspects of their lives, and participate in systems of domination in other aspects of their lives. Nevertheless, ideal types illuminate, inviting us to consider a third sense of dignity that relates neither to nobility nor to shared humanity. When white supremacy is nearly all-powerful and omnipresent, imagine the Jim Crow South in the US, challenges to this form of domination will not look like community organizing meetings advertising come here to challenge white supremacy. In a system meant to humiliate individuals and destroy sociality, resistance takes the form of any commitment to sociality, any commitment to sociality whatsoever, including family, religious community, dance, even funeral processions, as well as refusals to be humiliated including pride, holding one's head up, literary or aesthetic production, even humor. Thus, dignity is properly ascribed to black artists and dancers, black religious practitioners, black black dancers, and ordinary black men and women who subtly commit to resisting white supremacy. Not every black dancer or artist, joker or preacher counts as having dignity. Rather, dignity requires discernment, is the aesthetic production, or humor, or sermon, or whatever else, participating in or challenging the logic of domination? Whatever that system of domination may be. If, in the U.S. case of white supremacy, the white powers that be become accustomed to a particular black man who holds his head high, refusing humiliation, and then decide to make use of him as a liaison with the rest of the black community to keep that community in check. Should this particular black man still be described as having dignity? These complexities require judgment and discussion rather than the application of clear rules to classes of individuals. Holding your head up high, looking others in the eye when others around you are bowing their heads and averting their eyes, this looks like nobility. The king or princess or bishop also carries himself or herself in these ways. contrast to those individuals nearby who are not dignitaries. This dynamic occurs under the shadow of white supremacy in African-America where nobility and subtle resistance become identified. Black dignity. Black dignity also includes a sense in which everyone, by virtue of our shared humanity, has dignity, resonating with the modern European concept of dignity. In each of us, each, If each of us is dominated in some ways, and everyone who is dominated resists in some ways, each of us has a degree of dignity. It is by virtue of our shared humanity that we all always, to some degree, resist being dominated. And it is also by virtue of our shared humanity that we are in some way dominated. The dynamics of domination are all pervasive and unavoidable, whether they be around gender, race, class, disability, nationality, or some other ideology. In Christian terms, We live in a fallen world. In equally Christian terms, we all have the capacity to accept redemption. In a world of domination, we all have the capacity and desire, latent or not, to challenge domination. Secular political theorists sometimes label this realizing our humanity. The more we struggle, the more human we become. In the concept of dignity I am outlining, dignity is not ascribed because of a status but because of a performance. You have dignity because of something you do rather than because of who you are. Certainly repeated performances suggest something about the character of a performer, leading to a person being ascribed with dignity independent of a specific performance, but the performances remain essential. What performance of dignity looks like can vary widely. Systems of domination are deep and insidious, dictating what can be said and done, but also what can be felt, and even habits of thought. So challenges to domination can take place in many domains, by many means. Performances of dignity can involve performance in the narrow sense, such as theater, music, or oratory, but also in the broader sense of writing, philosophizing, praying, hesitating, and, of course, organizing. That black dignity is to be found in performance raises the worry that black dignity merely describes a social dynamic with no normative edge. And so that's what political and legal practitioners find so valuable about the concept of dignity today. Of course, in the tradition of black political thought, there are clearly normative claims made for dignity. For example, we demand dignity. In my account, such claims are performative. A woman achieves dignity by saying out loud, in the right sort of circumstances, that she demands dignity. But this would seem to reduce the normative to the descriptive, and it does not seem to take the content of political speech seriously enough. Those (laughs) struggling against domination seem to have a particular goal in mind, a world where domination is no more, where struggle is no longer necessary. In that world, everyone can hold their head up high, and look everyone else in the eyes. This strikes me as an eschatological scene, much like those evoked when we are invited to imagine a world of peace, freedom, harmony, love, justice, or equality. Whenever we take these slogans as more than rhetoric, when we try to explicate their content and turn it into a plan for action in this world, things go wrong. Political theorists recognizing this have finally become suspicious of ideal theory in recent years. In contrast, at the eschaton, there will be a relative dignity in both the sense of rank or nobility and the sense of inherent worth, democratized. Without domination, all will hold their heads up high. The explications of slogans invoking the eschaton that are helpful and that do pack a normative punch, focus on the negative. (laughs) Civic Republicans, like political theorist Philip Pettit, explicate freedom as non-domination. Some theorists have urged to focus on injustices rather than on theorizing justice. And I have argued that the language of love that Martin Luther King so famously deploys is best understood as a criticism of what love is not. The rhetorical power of such language, including the demand for dignity, certainly motivates, but it also contains a normative claim. Systems of domination are illicit and ought to be challenged. Put another way, performances of dignity of whatever sort contain implicit within them the call for others to join in. Black dignity is contagious and it catalyzes community organizing against domination. When dignity is invoked in black political practice, however, it seems to have a much more worldly focus. For example, consider the assertion segregated lunch counters are an insult to our dignity. As a performance, dignity is always situated within a specific context. What amounts to a performance of dignity in one context will have nothing to do with dignity in another context. Rather than taking the anti-segregation activist's rallying cry as expressing an eternal truth about dignity, that it implies segregation is always wrong, I take the slogan as pointing to a particular manifestation of a specific system of domination. In other words, what segregated lunch counters are an insult to our dignity means is that segregation, segregated lunch counters are a part of a system of domination that we must oppose. The claim also conjures a world without domination, a world redeemed, that motivates action in the present. Segregation is a mark of the distance between the world and between that world and our world, and opposing segregation indicates our commitment to that other world. Through the performance of that commitment, in rhetoric and action. We see dignity as it appears in this world, not in some pure form imagined in a world redeemed, but in its worldly form as opposition to domination. This brings us to the question of religion and specifically political theology. The democratized account of dignity that circulates in modernity is often presented as a secularized theological concept in Christian thought, humans are created in the image of God, guaranteeing our inherent worth. With secularization, this image is given specific content legible outside of a religious context. For example, it is said that possessing the capacity to reason is the way the humans image God. In this view, the pre-modern account of dignity was misaligned with Christianity, and it developed independent of Christian reflection on the image of God the transvaluation of dignity that took place with the start of modernity, brought dignity into alignment with Christianity, culminating in near coincidence of Catholic accounts of dignity and accounts of dignity in the nascent international legal regime during the mid 20th century. The story is certainly more complicated with pre-modern, with a pre-modern view having its own political theology with the king's dignity guaranteed by his association with the divine, Whereas the modern concept of dignity corresponds to a more incarnational theology. But is there any way of understanding Black dignity, in the sense I've described it, that suggests a relationship to Christian theology? Many of the Black political leaders who have used the language of dignity also participated in or were formed in Christian communities. If dignity means performances that challenge domination, and the end of domination can only be envisioned eschatologically, dignity would have a a significant theological resonance, at least. Further, if domination means idolatry, means the machinations of the wealthy and powerful that obscure our perception and ultimately separate us from each other and from the divine, then challenging domination means refusing the ways of the world, refusing to let the world fully define who one is. What remains, marked by that refusal, indicating something wholly other, is what Christians express as the image of God. Note the consequences of this distinctive political theological configuration. The modern European account of dignity would have us attend to the dignity of an orphan or leper or impoverished woman, noticing the image of God in her and responding with personal charity or by advocating for social structures that offer assistance. From the perspective of black dignity, the individual in need should not grab and hold our attention. Domination in all its varieties so pervades the world and distorts our perception that any instinct to respond to a particular suffering individual is likely to do more harm than good. Encountering a particular suffering individual is an occasion to notice systems of domination and, as our awareness of domination sharpens, to challenge them more effectively, ideally together with that suffering individual who prompted our reflection. Struggling together against domination, we both perform dignity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So part three complications. The historical narrative about dignity's democratization and modernity has come under scrutiny recently by historian Sam Sam Moyne. He claims that dignity simply was not a relevant concept in the practice of politics until the mid 20th century. At that point, the leadership of the Catholic Church began began, uh, talking about dignity. For example, in Pope Pius XII's 1942 Christmas message, The dixtole dignity throughout and listed dignity of the human person as a first aspect of a well-ordered society, and the concept began making its way into western European constitutions flowing from that. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted in 1948, begins, quote, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. And goes on to begin its first article, quote, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity. On Moyne's account, such language would have been unthinkable two decades earlier. <laughs> and even in the two decades following the Declaration's adoption, the language of human rights and dignity was slow to spread. There was a very specific set of factors that led to dignity's prominence in the 1940s, having to do with European Catholics' political influence through Christian democratic political parties. In the 1930s, the Church had been speaking of the dignity of workers and of the sacraments, rarely of individuals. But moderate French Catholics developed a language of human dignity to navigate between the Skyla of secular liberalism and the charities of totalitarian-friendly Catholic corporatists. After the war, these moderate Catholics captured elite political discourse. In Moyne's view, such uh, talk of human dignity today originates in this 1930s French Catholic context. If Moyne's account is correct, it would call into question dignity's status as a common denominator of black political movements from Frederick Douglass to Black Lives Matter. At the very least, it would introduce a discontinuity between black dignity before European influence in the mid-20th century and black dignity after. To explore this possibility, a research assistant, Hiram Goran, at Villanova, and I searched an electronic database of African-American newspapers that covered most of the 20th century for articles that used the word dignity. We found that the term was used in African-American contexts both before and after the shift that Moyne identifies. But the connotations of the term do indeed change. A 1906 item in the Afro-American refers to clerical dignity, associating it with solemnity. In 1908, the the same newspaper the Afro-American reprinted a two-paragraph item from the white-oriented ladies' home journal entitled Rival Dignities. It wittily contrasts English dignity, associated with descent from an ancestor ennobled by a king, and American dignity, associated with descent from an ancestor killed by an Indian. (laughs) Here, dignity, associated with the honors of nobility, is mocked. In a sense, dignity is democratized in the American context. Although the figure of the Indian limits this democratization to white Americans, black readers must certainly have appreciated that the thrust of the item was to mock any restriction of dignity to a special class of people. A feisty unsigned column in the Chicago Defender, another one of these newspapers published in 1911 under the title, There is Dignity in All Labor, complains that a certain local minister described washing and ironing as beneath his wife. The Cleveland Column Post reports that an African-American social club exists Existing in that city uh, was known as the Dignities uh, and had held a high-class dance suggesting that the name implies nobility or high rank. In 1948, just as the UN was enshrining dignity in international law, the Afro-American, the, the newspaper, praised City College of New York for upholding human dignity by removing an employee who insisted on segregated dormitories following student protests. By the mid-1950s and following, dignity was widely used in commentaries on racial justice struggles. If we look even earlier to the writings of Frederick Douglass, we find many instances of dignity associated with high rank or aristocracy. Uh, In The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, his third and longest autobiography published in 1881, we find the author describing the, quote, great dignity and grandeur of, of a certain colonel's home. A dignity and grandeur about the Chief Justice, uh, uh, a judge, uh, and a certain Commodore who departed, deported himself with much dignity toward us all, for example. There are also several uses of dignity in relation to women, suggesting that women hold a certain nobility like position, a usage also found in the newspaper archive, including the image of well dressed women representing the dignitaries' dance but most intriguing are the instances when Douglas uses dignity in a way that pushes against the limits of rank or aristocracy. Douglass notes that Americans, quote, affect contempt for the castes and aristocracies of the old world and laugh at their assumptions, yet the worth and dignity of manhood is not consistently respected in the United States because of the treatment of blacks. Further, retelling the story of his definitive fight with the slave-breaker, Covey, Douglas first notes, rather apologetically, that the battle in his narration was undignified. Yet the struggle was essential to recount, Douglas tells us, because it marks the turning point in his life, allowing him to dream anew of freedom. It, quote, revived a sense of my own manhood. Before before, before the fight, Douglas suffered from crushed self-respect. Now, he was confident and determined, all because of the physical struggle. Douglas concludes quote, A man without force is without the essential dignity of humanity. In short, in Afro- African American writing, we find the language of dignity used the way it is used in the ambient culture to denote high rank or, in the second half of the 20th century, inherent worth. But we also find a third concept of dignity, black dignity, as I called it, not accounted for by Moyne, not traceable to 1930s France. Black dignity both admires and mocks the pretenses of American dignity to universality, affirming instead dignity identified with, what Douglas calls, force, with struggle against domination, embodied, embodied in a slave breaker, or manifested in a system of white supremacy. The second and final worry that I want to consider about black dignity comes from a quite different direction. One component of the quite sophisticated political project advanced by young black activists today is an attack on respectability politics. By this they mean black politicians and activists who would offer a certain certain sort of performance to white audiences in order to be perceived as respectable and so worthy of white attention. Sometimes the dynamics of respectability are internalized in the black community itself, with black leaders receiving support from the black community because the leader appears respectable, for example, in the way she dresses or speaks or acts. Activists worry that not only are such performances unseemly, They also compromise the content and style of black political demands for an uncertain and often negligible payoff. Put another way, playing respectability politics appears to to activists to solicit the respect of whites or the white gays at the cost of black self-respect or black dignity. On the other hand, respectability and dignity seem troublingly close to each other. In other words, respectable, and dignified, used almost synonymously, are not some of the performances of dignity discussed above. For example, in the Dignities dance hall, really attempts to garner respect from whites, either directly or through an internalized white gaze. This worry becomes particularly acute when the language of dignity is applied to women, sometimes by women. Anna Julia Cooper, the Washington, D.C.-based community organizer, adult educator, and foremother of intersectionality, writes of the mission black women have to represent their race as a whole because, as she writes, well, when and where I enter in the quiet, undisputed dignity of my womanhood, without violence and without suing or special patronage, then and there the whole Negro, Negro race enters with me. Womanhood is effectively an aristocratic ring, giving black women an opportunity that black men do not have. If they lean on their aristocratic womanhood, black women will be given the honors appropriate to all women and allowed into workplaces, opening the doors for black men to follow. Activists would point out that Cooper's view seems to be acceding to domination rather than challenging it on two counts the domination of white supremacy and the domination of patriarchy. The historian and feminist critic, Brittany Cooper, has recently argued that Anna Julia Cooper and other early black feminists advanced positions that she calls beyond respectability, and what she describes as being <coughs> toward dignity. Cooper, the critic writes, quote, the call for dignity and the call for respectability are not the same, though they are frequently conflated." Demands for dignity are demands for a fundamental recognition of one's inherent humanity. Demands for respectability assume that that unassailable social propriety will prove one's dignity. Dignity, unlike respectability, is not socially contingent, Here, Cooper the critic leans on the modern, European definition of dignity indicating inherent worth. If we appeal to the black concept of dignity in contrast, dignity is understood as a performance located within a social context. Does that dissolve the difference between dignity and respectability? Just the opposite. The performance of respectability aims at creating the appearance of inherent worth. The performance of black dignity aims at challenging domination, which in effect means challenging rather than replicating the appearance of inherent birth ascribed to white men. As we have seen, such challenges can take a variety of forms. Can they include the quiet, undisputed dignity of my womanhood, as Cooper put it? As with all performances of dignity, the audience is called to judge. There may be good reasons on both sides, given the complexities of the cultural setting. If we recall how that line was received, that line from Anna Julia Cooper was received, our judgment may be swayed. When and where I enter became the title of the history of black American women. In the quiet, undisputed dignity of my womanhood became the title of another feminist history of black women. Elsewhere, Anna Julia Cooper writes of education for blacks in the post-emancipation South. She herself led a school for working with the blacks in the North. She writes elegantly about the sacrifices black women took upon themselves in order to, afford to, in order to afford to send their children to school. Cooper writes, the work of these schools has been like the little leaven hidden in the measure of meal, diffusing a contagious longing for higher living and purer thinking, inspiring woman herself with a new sense of her dignity in the eternal purposes of nature. For Anna Julia Cooper, dignity does not come about through violent, physical struggle as it does for Frederick Douglass, but it comes about through struggle nonetheless. If we understand struggle as a challenge to white supremacy, then the practice of education that Cooper describes here, the longing for higher living and purer thinking that is cultivated by schools most certainly runs against the machinery of domination that would quash all such desires. And here, Cooper returns us to the political theology of dignity. The forces of domination would keep black women and their children tethered to the world, but refusing the ways of the world, refusing white supremacy, and desiring something more elevates us to participate in the eternal. Thank you.